Hello and welcome to episode 13 of Ghost Stories for the End of the World. I uh, just want to wish a belated happy Thanksgiving to the American chaps, the American comrades who listen to this show, and I hope you're doing well and feeling good right now in this increasingly crazy, crazy world. Uh, wait, what's, what's that you ask? Why is it so hot? Why do we suddenly got an agent? How come he wants us to, quote, do whatever Mr. Spielberg asks for the love of God? Why is there gonna be different intro music for this one? Shut up, I will tell you. It's because this son of the free North now finds himself in the city of angels, Los Angeles, California, which means you do too, because I'm taking you with me. So get ready to blister neath the day glow sun and fail to the top of the biz, even as we fall down a rabbit hole stuffed to burst in with spooked up celebs and deep state Hollywood demonics. We're calling this series Hollywood Ghost Stories, but not all of them will actually take place in Hollywood. Why? Shut up. I will tell you. It's because I'm referring to Hollywood here in, you know, the abstract sense. Um, we're looking to get a feel for the, the kind of the pop culture psychosphere of the evil empire. We're interested in how celebrity and crime and high intrigue percolates in the American experiment. Uh, so right now we're on Sunset Boulevard and it's 5 a.m. I'm smoking a cigarette. Or at least vaping some spearmint oil, and I'm scoping the scene. Uh, I'm a big, bright, shining star, is what I'm saying. So for the next hour, we are putting our binoculars and safe cracking kit back in storage, and we're slipping on a nice pair of Ray-Bans, and we're handing out business cards as we circle this city of sin. Um, I thought we could draw back from the corridors of the U.S. government for this one, and get a little closer to the street tonight. Uh, we're going to need our yarn and we're going to need our corkboard anyway, though, because this one is a real doozy. It's it's what the Americans call a real screaming Mimi. Uh, and at first glance, it's, it's just another true crime style story. I appreciate that. And, you know, the usual deep state intrigue is mostly a marginal concern tonight. But what I think this offers us is a window into the shadow world of L.A., in a certain time and place. And it's an opportunity to reflect on some aspects of the death of the 60s counterculture and the web that expands outwards from one grim night in 1981. This episode is gonna take us to some pretty weird places. We've got drugs, porno, Scientology, the Vietnam War, and it's gonna have us making some insanely libelous connections. And it also offers us our first chance to visit Laurel Canyon, which is a place that we'll be returning to again in episodes to come. So jump in my cherry red 58 Plymouth Fury, which I call Christine the Ghost Mobile, and don't scuff the paint job because it's a rental. Tonight, we're talking about the Wonderland Massacre. So lawyer up, asshole, and tell Mr. Spielberg he's going to have to dangle for a while longer. Thank you.
Some of the cops who arrived at 8763 Wonderland Avenue in the Laurel Canyon area of LA had worked the Manson family murders 12 years before. And they described the scene on Wonderland Avenue as more gruesome than the scene at the Tate LaBianca residences in 1969. Five people had been tied up and beaten for an extended length of time with hammers and steel pipes. There were pools of blood and burn fragments splattered everywhere and only one of the victims was still breathing. The house had been ransacked. The cops spoke to some of the neighbours and they all reported hearing screams and sounds of a struggle beginning around three in the morning. But calling 911 wasn't an option because the people who lived at 8763 weren't known in the neighbourhood as pretty dangerous. The neighbours had all learned to look the other way when it came to what went on there. And more than a few of them were into dirt themselves anyway, so who needs cops sniffing around? The victims, it turned out, were well known to the police. Uh, they were a crew of armed robbers and drug dealers known as the Wonderland Gang, and they were deeply involved in the LA coke trade. And when the cops properly inspected the house, they realized there were bloody footprints tracking all over the place, and only some of them had actually been made by the killers and the victims. The rest were from business associates and people who'd visited the house throughout the night to score found the bodies and checked out before the cops got there. The sole survivor, Susan Launius, was taken to Cedar sinai Hospital and she was unconscious, missing a finger, and they had to remove part of her skull to relieve the pressure on her brain. So we'll run through the members of the Wonderland Gang here and we'll have a look at some of their connections before we kind of expand outwards. And first, we've got the leader of the crew, who was a guy called Ron Launius. Launius was a U.S. Air Force veteran who served in Vietnam. Uh, he was dishonorably discharged for smuggling heroin back to the States in the bodies of dead GIs. And what you need to make a note of here is that he served no jail time for this. The Air Force just kind of kicked him out. And if you listen to our episode about the Sicilian Mafia and the heroin trade, and you've read The Politics of Heroin then your antenna should be perking here, my friend, because that picture isn't right at all. So at best, the Air Force just hushed it up to spare themselves like a PR disaster. But at worst, Launius may have been a witting or unwitting part of the CIA's little side business and he got sloppy. Anyway, Launius haunted the LA underworld once he landed back in the States and he gained a reputation as a ferocious killer drug dealer and burglar. And one story has it that in 72 or 73, Launius was set up by some Californian rivals with a phony drug deal in Mexico. And it was actually a ruse to get him down there so the, the Mexican dealers could kill him. But Launius managed to shoot his way out. He killed most of the Mexican crew. And then he made his way back to California and killed the people who'd set up the fake deal. And the LAPD suspected that between the late 60s and the early 70s, he was directly responsible for as many as 30 unsolved murders in the city. And Launius also seemed to have kind of a, a sixth sense for sniffing out rats and informants. Uh, he's supposed to have killed a narc called Gary Moore and a murder case against him fell apart when the key witness was accidentally killed in a police shootout. 
David Lind was kind of like Lonius's attack dog. Uh, he was a biker, a drug dealer, a smack addict, and a member of the Aryan Brotherhood. And although Lonius had, he had that sixth sense that we mentioned, he never seemed to feel suspicious about Lind, which is odd considering that Lind was widely believed to be some kind of informant for the LAPD throughout the 1970s. Uh, he wasn't at the house on Wonderland Avenue the night the murders happened, which, you know, has raised eyebrows ever since. Um, he'd actually left the day before on business and then hooked up with his old friend Jim Fuller's. Fuller's is known as the godfather of surf rock and his band, The Surfaris, had a hit with Wipeout, which I'm sure you've heard. After this, Lynn spent the night of the massacre partying with some prostitutes in the San Fernando Valley. And when he got back to LA, a fence the Wonderland crew used by the name of Fat Howard uh, hit Lynn to the murders. Because by then, the word was out in the LA underworld that the Wonderland gang was no more. Now, I think this guy's connections to the Aryan Brotherhood and the LAPD are pretty interesting. And then, of course, Ron Launius's military service and dope smuggling operation in Vietnam. Well, that should raise an eyebrow as well, but I'm not trying to build a case for California Gladio or anything like that with the Wonderland crew. Um, instead of trying to work like a spook angle, what I'm hoping you are getting so far is a sense of institutional systemic decay here because you have the LAPD which has never really been a police force that's ever been particularly keen to cover itself in glory anyway well they're running neo-nazis as informants and therefore inevitably they are sanctioning David Lynn's robbery and trafficking side hustles as a kind of quid pro quo uh, he gets to keep operating and they get the odd headline arrest for the ongoing war on drugs. And then you have the US military letting a psychopath like Ron Launius rotate back to the US with a slap on the wrist because doing him for drug smuggling might risk drawing wider attention to the much larger network of clandestine CIA-sponsored opium trafficking that's going on in Southeast Asia during the Vietnam War. Guys like this are kind of like um, black market weapons and state agencies pick them up and use them and then discard them because these agencies are confident that people like Ron Launius or uh, Lind can never be traced back to them. But of course, the trouble with my little metaphor is that these guys aren't inanimate objects. They're not inactive when they're not being used by the LAPD or you know the US military or CIA or whatever. Um when they're not being used, they're still out in the world, you know, doing their thing, doing business and just raising all kinds of hell. And in Linus's case, it's entirely possible that they're never even really aware that they were ever part of a larger matrix at all. Now, another guy in the Wonderland gang was a guy called Billy uh, Deverell, and he was supposed to have been Linus's number two. And he'd occasionally express 
you know, contrition and doubts about his chosen career. Uh, he was a heroin addict and he held down a bunch of different day jobs in between running cook and burgling houses and ripping off drug dealers with the Wonderland gang. Tracy McCaw was usually the crew's getaway driver and he had a reputation for panicking quite easily. And then we have Joy Miller, whose name was on the tenancy of the house on Wonderland Avenue. And she gave the gang somewhere to hide out and kept them fed and housed. And she took payment in heroin. And she proved her loyalty to the crew in 1980 when she took responsibility for all the drugs and money that a vice squad discovered during a search of the house. The cops didn't believe her, but the crew appreciated the gesture anyway. And the gang also had a group of associates, including Susan Launius, Ron's wife, and Barbara Richardson, who was David Lynn's girlfriend. And she was also rumored to be a snitch for the LAPD as well. Now, there is one other pretty key figure who was a Wonderland crew associate, but we're going to get to him in a moment. For now, we could also do with kind of looking at looking broadly at Laurel Canyon and its reputation, because I think I sort of touched on the wider economic and cultural malaise that was going on in America after the sunshine optimism of the 60s began to dissipate from about 68 onwards, which, you know, manifested in things like the rising rates of drug abuse and violent crime. But Laurel Canyon offers us a really good close-up view of this. During the 60s and early 70s, Laurel Canyon had been famous for being home to some of the leading musical lights of the counterculture. So you had Frank Zappa, The Doors, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, The Birds, The Mamas and the Papas, The Eagles, the list goes on. Frank Zappa actually owned a house on Wonderland Avenue, which was, it was like a log cabin that he used to throw up and some music, musicians who lived in the neighborhood. Although, given his like right-leaning libertarian politics, I guess his, his radical bona fides are a little bit suspect. Uh, there was also a lot of overlap with actors and writers and directors from the emerging new Hollywood movement, guys like... Uh, Peter Fonda and Dennis Hopper and Jack Nicholson, people like that. So it was a pretty incestuous scene with all these beautiful people hanging out and drinking and getting high and forming bands with each other, then splitting up, trading partners and generally living exactly how you'd imagine rock stars in 60s California would live. And then, of course, came the Manson family killings in 1969. Now, the cloud of fear and paranoia that the Manson murders cast over, not, not just Los Angeles, but the whole counterculture movement, well, it's been explored at length elsewhere, so I'm not going to rehash it in detail here, but what's important to know is that it snapped a lot of people out of the kind of the optimistic reverie, and when they looked around at what the 60s as a kind of cultural phenomenon had actually become, they were quickly disillusioned because for a lot of people, especially the Hollywood types and rock stars who'd flirted with the counterculture and adopted the aesthetics of radicalism, the scene just wasn't the good time that it used to be. Even putting Manson aside, the drugs were getting heavier, the cops and the feds were running wild, it was hard to tell who was a narc or a spook and who was legit, the politics were becoming increasingly incoherent and unhinged. And whatever it was that had seemed so close between 
roughly 1966 and 1969 where whether that was an honest to god revolution be it like an overthrow of the existing order or some kind of paradigm shift that might have tilted the axis of the world and peacefully led to a whole new kind of society well the manson murders seem to be final proof that a better world was not a coming uh, John Lennon described the 60s as a time when everyone dressed up, but nothing changed. And in his book, Revolution in the Head, Ian MacDonald described the 60s as a kind of mass spiritual crisis, but one that never achieved the enlightenment it was groping towards. And he describes how very few of the hippie communes throughout America survived into the 1970s without becoming underground terror cells or organized crime groups, or straight-up cults of one type or another. And to paraphrase Danny from With Nail and I, by the start of the 70s, the world came down from its trip, and there were a lot of refugees. Uh, so the drugs, the guns, and the violence remained, but the hope and the optimism, and that the revolutionary spirit, such as it was, it gradually dissipated, and the backlash from the establishment the payback for the upheavals of the 60s was absolutely brutal. Uh, leading figures of all kinds of radical movements were paid off or imprisoned or outright murdered. The market would then move in and strip what was left of the counterculture for parts and sell it back to us all again and again as time moved on. And they're still selling it back to us today. And by the late 60s, the refugees, the people who couldn't return to straight society but had no alternative scene to call home, well, they wound up falling into an underworld that was dominated by crews like the Wonderland Gang. And this decline, this like implosion, played out in Laurel Canyon in the same sad way that it did everywhere else. And in fact, as if God himself was trying to add a little extra dramatic flair to proceedings, Frank Zappa's old house would burn to the ground the same year as the Wonderland massacre on Halloween night, no less. And by the way, and I have to mention this because I can practically hear some of you typing up the question right now. Um, yes, we will be touching on some of the, the weirder stuff about Laurel Canyon from the 60s right up to the present. And yes, we will be looking at Jared Letter and his purchase of Lookout Mountain Air Force Station in 2015. But, you know, that was, that's going to be a while from now. And you can also kind of chart these changing attitudes in the drugs that people were using throughout the 70s. Uh, heroin and cocaine mostly replaced the psychedelics. And you could guess that people seem to be split over how to confront the aftermath of the 60s. They either numb themselves to it all with heroin or they kind of cruise the surface like amped up on cocaine right so that other associate of the wonderland gang the, the one that I mentioned before. Uh, well, he was the guy who was probably more responsible for the murders than anybody else. And his name was John Holmes. Now, John Holmes was a signal car veteran 
and a devoted environmentalist. He was a member of Greenpeace. And he was also known to collect charity contributions door-to-door for groups like Save the Whales and Save the Seals. Uh, He was also a skilled woodworker, a clay sculptor, and something of an outdoorsman. Like, he, he never felt quite right if he didn't get out on the hiking and camping trails in the Californian wilderness every weekend. And Holmes also found himself launched to stardom with his role in Zodiac Rapist and became essentially the first modern porn star. Uh, He was described as the Elvis Presley of Stag and he was renowned for his incredibly big dick. Scholarly debate has raged for decades over just how big it was with conservative estimates putting it at around 10 or 11 inches but some claims push it as high as 13. And as the scholar and academic Al Goldstein has said, quote, to think that he walked among us with that massive tool, like a dinosaur with that thump, 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 but it wasn't his feet hitting the floor. It was his balls hitting the floor. It was his dick hitting the floor. Uh, Mark Wahlberg's character in Boogie Nights is actually partly based on Holmes, but unlike Dirk Diggler, Holmes never quite managed to claw his way out of the hole of cocaine addiction that he fell into during the 1970s. Not that he was a particularly nice guy, uh, despite his charity work and environmentalism, which is all true, by the way. Um, Although he made a huge living from porno, uh, he was pulling in as much as three or four grand a day at the peak of his fame in the mid-70s. Holmes was constantly in debt to one dealer or another because of his Herculean cocaine habit he turned to pimping and fraud and burglary and more to keep the wolves from the door Uh, he groomed and pandered a 15 year old girl called dawn shilling to friends and associates and he'd beat her if she refused to sleep with anybody and time and again he was busted and time and again the cops turned him loose because he was also an informant for the lapd's vice squad and just as a kind of side note to this i can't help but feel that Um, Not to get all Jungian on you or anything, but the fact that his first film was The Zodiac Rapist and that he'd be involved with something like The Wonderland Murders, I can't help but feel that there's some kind of synchronicity almost going on there, like some kind of meaningful coincidence is at play there. And I'm not even generally one to believe in superstition and the paranormal and stuff. But yeah, uh, so... Basically, Holmes developed a really nice sideline as a small-time heroin dealer for the Wonderland gang, but his inability to stop skimming drugs and money from the business put him on Ron Lonius's shit list. And Holmes was also a well-known figure on the LA club scene. Uh, he collected appearance fees and ran up huge bar tabs because his profile drew in customers. Uh, one of the club owners that Holmes was closely associated with was a guy called Eddie Nash, as well as his clubs and bars, Nash had also become the most powerful gangster in LA by 1981. And he was trafficking gigantic amounts of coke and heroin and running all manner of rackets that brought him huge uh, legal and political influence. Nash was actually born Adel Nazarala in Palestine and he moved to California around 1915, 1951, uh, he saw the British actually bomb his hometown of Ramallah in the 30s during the Arab Revolt. And while his family were languishing in a refugee camp, his brother-in-law 
was murdered by IDF soldiers and he bounced between menial jobs after landing in the States and he found a few bit parts and behind the scenes work in the movies. Uh, he worked as a stuntman and a horse wrangler and he also had a walk-on part in the TV show The Cisco Kid but his real calling was business and after investing in a hot dog stand on Hollywood Boulevard, he began to dabble in shakedowns and drug running and he used the profits from these early ventures to start buying nightclubs and restaurants in LA and by the 70s, he earned a string of night spots that catered to pretty much every demographic you can think of and of course, all of them were money laundering fronts for his growing coke and heroin rackets. Now, one of the most popular spots that Nash operated throughout the 70s was the Kit Kat Strip Club. And this place was the closest thing to a headquarters that Nash had. The club drew gangsters and movie stars, cops and politicians, and all of them would hobnob as they watched the floor shows. And more than a few of the strippers were also Scientologists, weirdly enough. And in between performances, they'd push Dianetics on the customers. Some of them were actually part of Narconon, which is Scientology's drug rehabilitation program. So you have a situation where recovering Scientologist drug addicts are working in a strip club which is a money laundering front for the biggest heroin dealer in Los Angeles at the time. And additionally, there are also rumors that some of the Narconon ladies were used by Nash in blackmail schemes against his more distinguished customers as a way to buy himself more political and legal protection and keep his business operating undisturbed. Another rumor, and this is a big allegedly, like a huge allegedly here, is that at least some elements in the Church of Scientology were in on a few of these schemes, and for a price, Nash would send them the dirt that he picked up on his VIP customers, and the church would then use this dirt to force these people into lifetime memberships of the, of the church. There is one other aspect uh, to all of this that I've been trying to find something on, which is, is whether or not Nash or the Wonderland gang ever had any dealings with the Contras around this time. Uh, you see, the Contras began their war against the Sandinista government of Nicaragua in 1979, and a large part of their funding came from running coke into the US with the backing of the CIA. So it seems entirely plausible to me that Nash uh, and or the Wonderland crew must have had some dealings with them at some point. Uh, but even, you know, even at two or three steps removed, but I can't find much of substance to connect them. So I'm not going to go so far as to say it's a fact, but, you know, I'd feel remiss if I didn't mention this evening passing uh, because given the size of Nash's operation by 1981 and the dominant role that the Wonderland crew also had in the LA drug trade. I would be very surprised if none of their coke or heroin had come by way of the Contras, the CIA or, you know, their intermediaries during this period of time. So I don't know, I'll throw it up onto the floor. If anyone can find anything on that, let me know because I'm dead curious. So let's bring it back to 
John Holmes because by 1981, he was struggling to find work in pawn because free basing cocaine had left him impotent. Um, crack hadn't, it hadn't quite exploded the way that it would in the mid 80s yet. So for most people chasing a more intense coke high, free basing was the best bet. Uh, but it could be a pretty dangerous process. I mean, if you look at Richard Pryor, he actually set himself on fire one time while trying to free base cocaine. And anyway, Holmes's debts were mounting and Ron Launius was hassling him for the money that he owed to the Wonderland crew. Holmes then hit on the bright idea of uh, tipping Launius to a score at Eddie Nash's house as a, a way to pay back some of his debt. So the crew mounted up and, as agreed, Holmes paid Nash a visit to score some coke and on leaving the mansion, he left the back door unlocked and the crew snuck in that night, overpowered Nash and his bodyguards and ransacked his house and they ended up stealing something like $1.5 million worth of jewellery, coke, heroin and cash. It was almost a perfect score, except that Eddie Nash immediately realized that John Holmes had been the inside man. So he sent his guys out to comb the city for him. And when they found him in Hollywood, he was wearing some of the jewelry that the Wonderland crew had actually stolen from Nash's house. And they took him to the mansion and he admitted everything. Now, Scott Thorson, who was Liberace's ex-partner and a frequent customer of Eddie Nash's, he said that Holmes was actually tortured for a while until he gave up the crew. So Nash sent a team of hitters around to the house on Wonderland Avenue and nobody, to this day, nobody knows exactly how many people were there or who made up the crew. But a few sources think that Nash and Holmes were, they were at least present while the murders took place. Ron Lornius, Billy DeVerell, Joy Miller and Barbara Richardson were all killed. Now, after David Lind found out about the massacre, although, again, I I can't help but suspect that he was tipped off that something was in the pipeline. I just find it very neat and very coincidental that he happened to be away from the house the night that all this happened. But anyway, you know, after uh, he got back to LA, we'll say, um, he went to the cops and he told them that he thought Nash was behind it. Uh, when the cops searched Nash's house, they found another stash of drugs and guns. And I should probably point out here that Eddie Nash was also a coke fiend. And he was so highly strung at this point that when the police first came knocking, he had his bodyguard up and fire on him. And there was a brief shootout. And interestingly, only the bodyguard who shot at the cops was detained. Nash remained out on bail, which suggests to me that he had some kind of juice with the cops, you know, as they say. And when they raided his house again in November of 1981, they found another stash of coke and guns, along with a couple of kilos of heroin and pills. And I find it quite interesting that he'd been a suspect in a multiple murder for months at this point, and nobody had seemed to notice his drug business was operating pretty much the same as it always did. John Holmes had also been picked up by the cops shortly after the massacre. And after he posted bail, uh, he and Schilling, the, well, she was 15 when he met him. She wasn't at this point. Uh, they went on the run and their trip took them 
all the way to Florida. And then he was finally arrested at a motel in Miami in December. And years later, his wife said that he'd admitted being present along with Nash and his crew as the murders happened, but he never said a word to the cops. Uh, he was, by all accounts, terrified of Nash, who was already facing time for drug trafficking. Now, I don't want to bore you with all the ins and outs of Nash's various trials and retrials that followed throughout the 1980s, but suffice to say, they were a shit show of witness intimidation and bribery and jury tampering and you name it. Now, what is interesting is the presence of a guy called uh, Gerald Chelef. Now, he was a criminal defense lawyer who was hired by Eddie Nash to represent him at his first trial. And Chalif was a lawyer for the Church of Scientology, who we'll remember had a presence at Nash's nightclubs. Chalif was a Scientologist himself, and he'd also defended Angelo Buona, who was the Hillside Strangler, during his trial for killing 10 women around Los Angeles with his partner in crime, uh, Kenneth Bianchi. Now, there are two LAPD connections here as well. Uh, first, Bianchi had wanted to be an LAPD cop for years, and he became pretty friendly with some officers and even went on ride-alongs with them. And the whole time he was doing this, he was also committing the murders with Buono. The other connection is Chalif himself because he was appointed special assistant for constitutional policing by the LAPD in 2003. And he helped put together a report on Christopher Donner. Donner was the cop who claimed he was dismissed by the LAPD for trying to expose police misconduct. And he ended up going on a shooting spree um, against the police before killing himself in a cabin in uh, the mountains outside of Los Angeles. The report that Chalef worked on found the LAPD had no case to answer uh, as far as Donna's allegations went. But, you know, to be fair to him, he does seem to have been quite critical of the LAPD's policing tactics over the years. And, you know, he drafted a number of reports that tried to reform the department. But who knows how much of this was just, you know, for the press or whatever. So despite a life spent in the drug business, repeated police raids and multiple trials. Eddie Nash somehow escaped doing any real time for anything. Uh, he was tried for possession and distribution after the, the 81 raid, but a $100,000 bribe to the presiding judge reduced his sentence from eight years to two. And he later got 37 months for money laundering and drug dealing in 2001, which was reduced from four after a plea bargain. I think... He was almost certainly some kind of catch and release informant because no matter what the cops tried to pin on him, he always managed to wriggle out of it. And in fact, one read the cops found what they thought were a few kilos of methamphetamine, but it turned out that the meth had somehow been replaced with mothballs. So someone, I think, was tipping him off. You know, they let him know that that raid was coming. And he certainly had protection from someone because while he was doing his two years in 1982, Someone broke into his house and removed a 60-pound floor safe from his basement. Now, I've dug around for tidbits about this, and most people seem to agree that this was probably where he was keeping all that blackmail debt he'd accrued um, and his financial records as well. I couldn't help but think about Operation Snow White when I read about this. Um, Operation Snow White 
was when the Church of Scientology organized the theft of files and evidence about their activities from about 130 US government buildings all around the world in the 1970s. For some reason, I don't know why, but for some reason I think the church might have been involved in, in Eddie Nash's safe going missing. Susan Launius, who survived the attack at Wonderland but had amnesia, she wound up retiring from the life and moving to Southern California. David Lind died of a heroin OD in 1995 and Tracy McCaw died in 2006. John Holmes was sent down for a couple of months for contempt of court. Um, he refused to cooperate with the investigation into the Wonderland massacre. And when he got out, he went back to pawn. But times had changed and a new generation was um, rising to the top of the industry. While the arrival of mail order video meant that he couldn't command the fees that he had before. Around 1986, he was diagnosed as HIV positive and he died of encephalitis in 1988. Now, today, nobody has been convicted for committing the Wonderland murders, but it's widely accepted that Eddie Nash ordered them and John Holmes was, at the very least, the one who gave the crew up. Now, for me, the Wonderland massacre is a kind of photo-negative of the Manson murders. Because whereas with the family murders, you had the popular narrative of the hippie freaks rising up from the dark underbelly of the counterculture to snuff out beautiful people like Sharon Tate and her friends, this idea of, you know, these perfect, wealthy, wide-eyed innocents being undone by the freaks of the age of Aquarius. And, you know, for a lot of journalists and cops, what made things a little easier to process was that there was also a an undergirding philosophy to go along with what the Manson family had done. So as insane and, and probably unreal as Manson's helter-skelter philosophy was. And, you know, here I have to implore you to read Chaos by Tom O'Neill because he explodes the helter-skelter myth pretty comprehensively. Um, but for all that, at least in 1969, Manson had a motive that the press and the straight world could, they could hang their hats on it, you know. And, you know, at least on some level, there was a reason for all the bloodshed as deplorable and repulsive as that reason was. With Wonderland, you see a similar mass murder playing out, but on the other side of a decade of dwindling economic hope, disillusion and mounting cynicism. In Laurel Canyon in 1981, you only have bad people meeting their end at the hands of worst people. And instead of a promising actress and her talented friends, you have a porn star whose claim to fame was a gigantic cock, ratting out a crew of smack addicts and dope runners led by a horribly broken Air Force veteran. And instead of 
um, spaced out hippies trying to like trigger an apocalyptic race war. You have a mob boss looking to get revenge for some stolen coke and Rolexes. So in that respect, it's almost a perfect bookend to the Tate Labianca killings, like a perfect measure of how much things had changed since 1969. Uh, because in a dark and a horrifying way, and I, I really don't want you to take this the wrong way, you know, um, but in a, in a horrifying way, the Manson family had been every bit as utopian as the flower children who slipped daffodils into the muzzles of the rifles held by National Guard volunteers at Kent State. Um, as screwed up and horrifying as, as those ideals and that philosophy had been. But with the Wonderland gang, and Eddie Nash, what you have instead of utopianism is the cold, brutal business of drugs and cash of who was owed what. And it may have been morning in Reagan's America, but it was midnight on the streets. And in Ron Launius, you had America's crimes abroad coming home. You had a killer and a drug runner leading a crew of desperate freaks. In Eddie Nash, you had the classic immigrant success story, but it's all inverted and fucked up. Uh, it was a guy who was determined to claw his way to the top and succeeded. And in John Holmes, you had a guy who, through a fluke of the uh, exploding porno industry in the 70s and genetics, uh, found himself just catapulted to fame. But he was also an an anticipation of the kind of empty celebrity that we're all too familiar with now. And without wanting to sound too glib, all of them in their own ways were chasing this thing that we used to call the American dream. All of them were clinging to the sides of this greasy pyramid scheme called capitalism. And the fact that Eddie Nash's operation had these overlaps with Scientology for me couldn't be more appropriate because what is Scientology but another American religion that turns out to be just another empty tax dodge? I can't think of a more fitting organization to have been connected to a guy like Adele Nasrallah. And I think in a way that the sheer senselessness of the Wonderland massacre all that brutality and violence expended for the most base reasons of greed and power couldn't have been a more appropriate beginning to Reagan's America. That was our first entry in the Hollywood Ghost Stories series. Remember, you can support the show on Patreon and you can get access to the twice monthly Q&A and take show as well as the bulletin newsletter. So that's another two hours worth of audio content and the bulletin newsletter as well. Send all queries and thoughts to ghoststoriesend at gmail.com review and rate us on iTunes. Uh, let's knock some motherfuckers off their perches. Why not? And subscribe to the feed if you haven't already. Urge on friends and loved ones alike. 
and don't get captured. Cheers, guys. Been around this block twice now, looking for something, a clue. Been looking for clues, and something led me back here. Yep, so here I am. Could have been me, the one that was at Ringo's place when the shit went down. Hey, I know how it is. I've been there. We've all done bad things. We've all had those guilty feelings in our heart. You want to take your brain out of your head and wash it and scrub it and make it clean? Well, no. But I'm going to help you settle this. First, we're going to check for holes, see what we can find. Then we're going to get nice and wet, and you're going to spread your legs. Oh, that's good. So you know me. You know my reputation. Thirteen inches is a tough load. I don't treat you gently. That's right. I'm Brock Landers. So I'm gonna be nice. So I'm gonna be nice. So I'm gonna be nice. And I'm gonna ask you one more time. Where the fuck is Ringo? I am a star. I'm a star, I'm a star, I'm a star. I am a big, bright, shining star.